of good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's guest is both a friend and a colleague for many years, Richard Marshall. He is the head of the corporate affairs practice at Corn Ferry. Corn Ferry is the largest executive recruiter in the world. It's a management consultancy that is traded on the New York Stock Exchange, about a $2 billion company with about 8,000 employees. He is a rock star in our space, which is basically communications, corporate affairs, media relations, crisis communications, investor relations, and so forth. But he's also just a great guy. So Richard Marshall, welcome to The Caring Economy. Hey, thank you, Toby. Uh, and thank you for that overly kind introduction. Uh, really great to be with you. And uh, you know, thank you for inviting me to participate on this platform. I, I have to say, I'm really honored. You've, you've had such an impressive an accomplished roster of guests you've had on so far, um, all of whom have had really amazing career journeys. So uh, thank you for including me. My pleasure. Um, you know, I, I, as you say that, Richard, what I'm thinking about is what we've had from the start is a relationship. And I think that that's one of the, the philosophical um, foundations for my life and my business and this show about relationships, not just transactions. And I feel the same way about you uh, as, a, as a professional, recruiter, but also as a, as just a all around good guy, the relationship thing is so important. Would you agree? No, absolutely. Look, I mean, life is a journey and, um, you know, building and keeping and, and growing relationships is really important. I mean, whether it's uh, for something in the moment or longer term, I mean, um, it, it's a really rich, wonderful way to extend your network and to to really gain insight and, and perspective. It just makes life richer when you've got, uh, you know, lasting relationships uh, in them. And really leads to impact, I think. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, your life journey, Richard Marshall, sort of, um, my <laughs> listeners like to know sort of, uh, not just how you got where you got, but quite frankly, any sort of bumps you may have had along the road where you turned left when others went right, or, or mm -hmm. and in retrospect, we're probably, fantastic, even though at the time they might have been a little bit shocking to the system. Yeah, well, you know, I, I obviously never had any kind of master roadmap for this. I don't, I don't think that anybody does, especially in today's today's world. But I sort of look at my career and life journey as really in sort of three chapters. So, you know, early days for me were really around government and politics. And then pivoted and went into the corporate um, side of my career, which I spent 20 years in-house as a chief communications officer at three different companies. And now my third chapter really, which is what I'm doing now, which is in recruiting and consulting. So I kind of bucket my journey into those three areas and, you know, quick background on me. I grew up middle-class Midwestern upbringing. My father was a college uh, professor who taught sociology and mass communications in the late sixties. And so I think early on, I was kind of drawn into social issues and politics, um, having seen that as a, as a kid on campus. Mm -hmm. And went on, got my college uh, degree, got a political science and business marketing background. And, and I think more, you know, maybe the first pivot point for me was an internship that I did in Washington, DC with uh, the senior senator from my home state. And I like the idea of service. I like the idea of being at the center of power and, and also feeling like you had a seat to see how things got done. 
Um, so when I, when I graduated from college, my first job was working uh, in the Commerce Department. And uh, I had a lofty job. I was the international trade specialist uh, promoting Indiana agricultural products. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but I got to travel to 23 countries in two years and promoting products and building relationships, working with embassies and consulates and trade associations. It was a great way to really um, gain some experience around business, around culture, mm-hmm. around um, different kinds of business nuance. And so it was a really rich and rewarding experience for me. Um, I moved over to USA Today. I left government at that point and, and took a short stint, went to USA Today in a marketing role as they were launching the paper, um, for those that may remember that in the early 80s, and, but got recruited back to government. And um, the state of Indiana had uh, offered me a job to be the ombudsman for the state after it had landed a big um, car plant deal for the uh, Japanese car company, Subaru. Mm-hmm. And so my role became a little bit of a shuttle diplomat. I was the intermediary between the Japanese officials and all the state agencies that were involved in this big incentive package. And so again, another wonderful experience for me. Uh, And when that was over, I got recruited into Subaru uh, to be their head of, uh, originally to be their PR manager and eventually become the head of communications there. And that was sort of chap that launched me into chapter two which was really my corporate career. And so I was at Subaru for 11 years and then I got recruited to Silicon Valley and uh, ran uh, communications and corporate affairs for a company called Silicon Graphics and then uh, moved on to Home Depot in Atlanta where I ran that organization, uh, the communications organization for five years. Um, So that, that chapter, chapter two really was the corporate side and it was the top corporate affairs roles at three companies three different industries, three different locations, and five different CEOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was all, um, I think, really interesting and uh, interesting part of my journey. Yeah. And chapter three now is what I'm doing, which is, and I've been doing this now for 15 years, working with Corn Ferry, and I've got a wide range of clients that, uh, that I work with, different geographies, different challenges, different industry sectors, and, uh, and loving that. So, and here we are today. So uh, one of the constant themes I hear across those, those different chapters is purpose. You talk about uh, serving in government, which is always noble in my mind, um, although sometimes besmirched <laughs> these past few years. <laughs> um, but we're getting back where we need to get, I think. Um, and then uh, in corporate communications, but also with brands. I mean, I think of Subaru as having the most incredibly loyal consumer base. I don't have a Subaru, but it's probably the car of choice where, uh, where we have our home. Um, and then I think about Home Depot and what the founders there have done philanthropically for Atlanta and, and, and just the, the kind of can-do it spirit that the whole brand stands for. I wonder about that concept of purpose, uh, Richard. How, how does that define you? Has it been a conscious effort on your part? Can you talk a little bit about purpose? Yeah, no, that's a it's a great question. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but 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 I have to say that the Subaru experience was really foundational for me because it really was a purpose driven brand, and I came in at the at a time when um, they were really trying to be a mass marketer and were failing miserably. Um, 
you know, we were third or fourth on everybody's shopping list. And, and I remember being in the leadership conversations. And at the time, I was more of a junior PR person. Um, but we were really trying to find our way in the market. And uh, it really sort of came down to who are we and what do we do best? And what's, what's our reason for being? And I think what we realized is that we had a unique product, narrow though it was, and we had a really loyal customer base that was very focused on, um, you know, active lifestyle, um, you know, and, and we really went uh, into what I call sort of deep reflection around where we would fit in the marketplace. And, um, and those were, there were some challenging times because I remember we were probably three quarters away from pulling out of the US market. We were losing money on every car that we sold. We had stacking up inventory. And um, <clears throat> our CFO at the time, who later became the CEO, said, really, we have to carve out what is our reason for being? You know, what, what is our purpose? And, uh, and that really was a galvanizing moment for all of us. And from a communication standpoint, and I had moved up to the top role at that time, uh, was how do we communicate this to the marketplace? And, uh, and so we were very purposeful and thoughtful and I think strategic around being sort of the consummate niche marketer. And, uh, and we, we were integrated in how we did that. So it was not only picking the audiences and, and going after um, <clears throat> those, um, those audiences that we knew were loyal to us, but also um, you know, the active lifestyle. Uh, we were also the first uh, car company that uh, actively started working with the LGBT community. And uh, I remember we did a campaign with Martina Navratilova, the rainbow, uh, <clears throat> rainbow affinity card. And it was, uh, it was a risky proposition in the late 90s. And, um, and there was you know, some concern within, you know, within our dealer network about what the backlash might be. But you know, I think credit to the leadership team there that we decided that it was a, an important roll of the dice for us to put a stake in the ground. And um, it, we launched the Outback. Uh, we did a number of big campaigns around that and it really started to gain traction. And I think once you get clarity around who you are and what you stand for, uh, it really resonates. And we certainly saw that. And we, we went from being sort of a worst in business performance to best business performance in about three years. Wow. And it really, really saved the company. So for me, that, that brand experience and that um, sort of uh, near-death experience, as we used to call it inside, was, uh, was really um, pivotal for me and, and my learning journey. That's, you know, um, as a gay man, I can say that the Subaru probably is the number one car for my, my lesbian girlfriends. Um, so I think what you, you, you seeded then is still bearing fruit. Um, tell us a little bit of, if you can reflect upon that executive at that time who had that bold question, that somewhat fearful uh, question about what are we, who are we? Um, what do you, do you know what he was thinking at the time or, or how he had that bold leadership move? Yeah, <clears throat> it's a, it's a good question. You know, I think it, it wasn't sort of a, a one single moment. It was a number of conversations and, and we got a lot of pushback also from the Japanese who, who built the product. We were the marketing arm. And so there was a lot of uneasiness about, you know, is this the right direction? Um, 
But, you know, when you're in desperate straits and uh, and we were at the time, everybody was moving to truck based uh, sport utility vehicles and we were a car based four wheel drive platform. Um, we were trying to say, you know, we're an alternative and um, good quality product. Um, but we had uh, it was it was kind of a desperation move. And I think we all realized it. I mean, the, the CFO used to come into the meetings and say to us, he said, uh, I remember him saying at one point, he said, um, I, you know, I don't want to be the grim reaper here, but uh, this meeting, all of our time that we're spending on this is costing us X thousands of dollars and we are losing money on every car that's being sold. So we need to make some decisions here. So there was, I think there was financial pressure and it was the, the CEO at the time, George Mahler, who really made the commitment and said, look, we need to go this direction. This is the only way that we can make money. Um, you know, we need to align with the, the, the core target audiences that are buying our product. They're, they're loyal, they'll repurchase. And so it was, a, I think, a coalescing of a lot of these things that all came together. Ladies and gentlemen, again today we have on the Caring Economy Richard Marshall, who is the head of the corporate affairs practice at Corn Ferry, the world's largest executive search firm traded on the New York Stock Exchange with call letters KFY. Richard, uh, Corn Ferry has recently come out with a new report on the, the rise of the CSO, the Chief Sustainability Officer. Uh, I think that that is a reflection of what you were seeing the roots of or seeding the roots of way back when at Subaru and and Home Depot around corporate responsibility. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the report and uh, perhaps philosophically how Corn Ferry looks at the whole practice area of uh, chief sustainability officers? Yeah, well, thank you for the plug. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a new paper that we released just a couple of weeks ago. It's called The Rise of the Chief Sustainability Officer. And got to give credit to a lot of my colleagues in Asia and Europe um, who helped us to pull this together. Uh, it's really a, a compilation of about 50 interviews that we did with uh, chief executives and chief sustainability officers to, to get a pulse on how is the role evolving? You know, how do you ensure success in the organization? And, and what are the key skills and traits that the leaders need for these roles? And um, you know, we, we picked some of the most successful brands across all industry sectors. I mean, just to give you kind of a profile, we had Unilever, Danone, uh, Vodafone, Syngenta, um, among others. And so we, we really used the opportunity to kind of pull out from them, like, how is the function evolving? What are the success factors? And, and what are they seeing in terms of trends? Mm -hmm. And I mean, just a couple of quick headlines is, you know, I think that what we heard is that sustainability now has never been more important um, than it has been. Um, certainly the, you know, the, the climate is, uh, is, uh, has changed not only the business, or the um, ecological climate, but the business climate, the political climate, all of it, the, the timing is right for this. And, and, and investors are more socially conscious. So these things are, all sort of dynamics that are playing around, I think, moving this function forward. Um, it, the other thing that we heard too is that, you know, within these companies, sustainability is systemic. It touches everything. Mm -hmm. And typically in, in these organizations, it sits somewhere between the, the office of the strategy office and the CEO's office. And it touches every aspect of business. It's fully aligned and integrated. And it kind of boils down to three things is, you know, the, the, short, uh, the short summary of the, the paper is really 
it comes down to executive committee membership, the buy-in, you know, the, the CEO sponsor is absolutely key. Um, secondly, the, the CSO, the chief sustainability officer needs to understand all of the business impacts and look at it from a 360 degree perspective and build those critical alliances internally. And then thirdly, it's also the recognition that the CSO is, is a guide um, and, and not, it, it's a partnership approach that needs to be successful. It, it's not a mandate. So there's shared accountability in moving these things forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think one of my favorite quotes, and I'll, and I'll stop after this, is that uh, the, the CSO, the Chief Sustainability Officer of Unilever said, you know, sustainability has to be part of the value proposition. Mm-hmm demonstrating at least one of building growth, building trust, and reducing risk or lowering costs. In this way, you show the direct link to the business case. And I think that's, that's really uh, well said and I think um, is a good summary for, for what's contained in the paper. Absolutely. Uh, that's been my observation and my experience. I also think that uh, it's too easy. It used to be too easy. I think it's harder now. It used to be too easy to think that, oh, we'll just appoint a CSO and then we're good to go. When I built the corporate social responsibility platform at Christie's, which we called Art and Soul, um, it was not for me to be the answer to all things sustainable, transparency, um, volunteerism, oriented, and so forth. It was really to be catalytic. And as right. your report has suggested, that that lead person needs to be really the, the I guess, the evangelist in chief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. answer right yeah absolutely no yeah we should have brought you into this interview as well because i think so much of what you've shared with me personally and and, and what you accomplished in that role is very spot on so i, th- I think this is going to be when you read this toby you'll you'll be uh you'll you'll be reliving your your time at christie's i'm sure you know it'll be joyful uh, you know <laughs> interesting because um, I, I had a great run a decade at Christie's, and I will say when we were pioneering things like the green auction, three-year commitment to four environmental groups, and, and, and all the things that good CSO practitioners are up to, um, we were ahead of our time. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying that because it was my baby. It was really a group effort and the legacy. Yeah. Past, um, let's see, this is now April. In February, Christie's announced a really broad, sweeping commitment to what we call uh, a race to zero, you know, trying to be net zero by 2030 mm-hmm. and, and really, really embracing it now in a way that's business critical, not just for Christie's, but for governments, for organizations, those that you're recruiting for, no doubt. Uh, mm-hmm. So CSO becomes critical in making those commitments. But, you know, <laughs> I, I often say in my own career coaching and, and helping others, like, leadership can be a lonely place. You can look to your left and look to your right, and you're not necessarily going to find compadres there. But I think there's a gut check that kind of goes into to some of this, which doesn't necessarily fit into algorithms or or maybe into your databases in a corn ferry. But I think that's where you come in as the recruiter who has that that human piece, right? Like your, your tagline is, as I recall, is a, a radically human organization. And that's, I think, your secret ingredient, Corn Ferry, and you, Richard Marshall, as the head of that practice area. Well, you know, I, th- I think that that is something that, that our organization is really focused on. It, you know, it, they always say, you know, talent is the differentiator, but especially in these days and times, you know, talent and, and the human element of talent and being, you know, mindful of all perspectives and being inclusive of all perspectives 
is really going to be the differentiator between the winners and losers in, in organizations and in business moving forward. Um, and I think, you know, nothing has shined that light more brighter than the challenges that we faced in, you know, in the past year. It's been kind of a perfect storm of all of these issues that have challenged all of us personally and professionally. So it's a, it's a moment. I'm glad you said that because uh, that's the perfect segue to uh, from the CSO report to DE&I, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, I was on a, a call this morning with my Artscom group and we were honored to have Levita Turner, who's the new chief diversity officer at the Metropolitan Museum. And while I can't mm -hmm. ask the details of that uh, meeting because it's a, a closed door session, it was... Uh, Wonderful to hear her say that she, I'm paraphrasing, but she would want at the end of her tenure that the legacy be that all, all activities done by the staff and the organization are done with a, uh, a, an equity lens. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same whether it's CSO or DE&I. It's not one person, one chief diversity officer in this case, who can check that box, right? It's a right. culture shift. It's a philosophical, practical um, ongoing exercise. And I, I believe in this. I think it is the yeah. only hope we have. And I love that so many organizations are now embracing it, um, hopefully soon enough and fast enough. Yeah. Well, it's about time, right? I mean, it's, it, in some ways, it's kind of a, 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 an obvious thing. But, but for so many organizations, and, and I know that my colleagues in the firm, um, you know, we, we've we've always placed an emphasis on, on diversity and, and inclusion and, and do that in any of the searches that we do. But, but our advisory services um, in terms of coaching organizations on how to build that uh, capability within the organization has been um, incredibly busy. And, and it's, you know, it's, it, it's heartening in some way to see that there's great opportunity and it's energizing for my colleagues that have been around this for their entire careers and advising people, but it's also disheartening in a way that it's, you know, it, that there's so much need for it right now, um, you know, that we're not further along. Um, but, uh, but it really is, it's the topic of every conversation, whether it's search or advisory consulting work, um, every organization and uh, that I can think of is really sort of wrestling with this and trying to figure out um, how can we build capability? How can we be more inclusive? Um, how do we design systems that are um, equal and fair to all? And how do we provide opportunity, um, you know, for, um, for our employees? And, and how do we bring more people in? Um, so I, I think it's a, you know, despite the, the you know, the, the terrible things that are happening, I, I think it's a, I think it's a positive moment that these discussions are elevating not only to the executive level, but also to the board level. And I think, you know, the, the old saying, you know, what gets measured, you know, gets, um, you, 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 you move the needle. And, um, and I think more organizations now are so acutely aware and, and are really trying, I think, to implement the right kind of systems and protocols uh, to do the right thing. And, and I'm, I'm proud of my firm that we've got the capability. And certainly we don't, uh, we're not the only ones to do it. There's a lot of fine organizations out there that are that are doing similar sorts of things. But it's um, it always makes me proud when I see that we've we've brought on new clients and we're advising them from the board all the way down 
to sort of look at things, look at DEI on a, a holistic uh, perspective. Yes. Um, ladies and gentlemen, stay with us uh, till after this break. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today we have Richard Marshall from Corn Ferry. He is the head of the corporate affairs practice there. He is uh, one of the, the best allies you could hope for, both in terms of career advancement and, and recruitment, but also just as a good guy. Um, Richard, you have those Midwestern values. I like to think that I also have. Um, it's not limited to people from the Midwest, but I've always admired your sort of poise and your um, just the relationship focus you bring to business. So. Thank you for that. Um, question you. for you: In talking about boards and DEI, I wonder. I, I also think there's a more and more opportunity because of social media and the times we live in to go younger to our, actually the rank and file. Um, you have two young daughters. I wonder how you, either as a parent or as a professional, think we should be engaging young people in these, both in recruitment, but also in these bigger issues of DEI, social justice, climate, and so forth. Do you give them more attention now or are you, what do you do? Well, it's, yeah, it, it kind of hits home for me because I, I do have two daughters and they would argue they're not young. They're 26 and 22 now, but, um, uh, but they're both of mixed race and they both have faced, you know, um, um, challenges in, um, you know, in their lives. Um, and, you know, the, um, they sometimes get tired of, of conversations that we have around this, because a lot of times they tend to be focused more on career orientation. Um, but, you know, the, um, but I, I think young people today, I mean, it, it's, uh, it is a very, it, none of us had sort of a playbook when, when I was in high school or in college, nobody said, you know, here's the path you can take. I had to figure it out. My daughters and, and uh, other people's children will have to figure this out as well. Um, you try to, you know, what I try to stress with my, my daughters is, you know, be open to opportunities, you know, getting to where you think you want to be. It's not going to be a straight line. Mm -hmm. There's going to be twists and turns along the ways. There's going to be triumphs and, you know, and disappointment. And uh, you have to learn from those, you know, what can you take from that? And, and recognize that, that it's also one, one misstep isn't, you know, isn't fatal. There's, you know, opportunities to rebound, learn from that, pivot, and, and move your, your career direction forward. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and so I think, I think uh, the, the younger folks who, you know, who are dialed in so much on, on social media, you know, I, the one thing I always told my daughters is be careful what you post because um, that will always come back to haunt you and uh, it lives forever. And that's, that's one thing that didn't exist. I think when I was coming up earlier in my career um, and I think that that is a do, uh, you know, a new dynamic that younger people uh, have to be mindful of, but, um, but it's, it, it is a open world. I think there's, there's so many an open, what I mean in terms of opportunity you can really chart your own course. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes take, what I like to think about is take stock in terms of what you're good at, what you're not good at, especially when you're starting out. Um, you know, learning what you don't like is just as important um, as, as specializing on the things that you're really good at, because you know you can kind of stay away from those things or that you don't want to move down that track. So be open, take risks. When you're young, it's the, it's the perfect time to try things out. If it doesn't work out, you know, you, 
you can pivot and move in a different direction. Um, so be open, take risk, and um, and really follow your passion because uh, you know at the end of the day um, you're going to spend you know half of your life working and uh, or in whatever pursuit you're doing. You really want to enjoy it and love it and and be committed to it. Do you have this is a personal question? You don't have to answer if you don't want, but. Do you have any examples without naming names of how you as a professional have had to nudge or coach or delicately guide someone such as a client uh, around a sensitive, offensive statement that he or she may have made about a mixed race person or someone other than themselves? I mean, we don't we don't bring our families physically to work with us most days, right? So yeah. people say know that Richard Marshall from Corn Ferry has two mixed race daughters but you do, and you worked at one point for a Japanese company. So I suspect, and as I recall, your daughter is Asian American. So sure. I, have you, how do you, how do you delicately, diplomatically, responsibly help someone understand that their words have impact that they might not really fully grasp? Boy, that's a, that's a good question. I, I'm trying to think of examples. Um, yeah, um, on the spot, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it would be really helpful to our listeners, particularly with the recent surge in Asian hate crimes. Yeah, well, you know, I think I, I think that my general philosophy is try to de-escalate things. It's it's too easy for things to get heated, um, and for and especially now. I mean, with with all the violence that we see, I mean whatever we can do to de-escalate issues. And, and for those that, that have made an honest mistake and don't necessarily understand the impact of their words or you know, what they've insinuated, you know, a, you know, a sidebar conversation to, to say to somebody, you, know, you may not realize it, but you offended this person in the room. Um, and just be mindful of that. Not calling them out necessarily in the moment or embarrassing them and, but, but trying to help educate and coach them. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, people are reasonable. I don't know, maybe this is the Midwestern. I think if, if we can take down the temperature of some of these things and, and just have a, a conversation, we're all people, we're, yep. we're all flesh and blood. I mean, and, and be sensitive to understand that different people's perspectives um, bring different things to a conversation. Yeah. And, um, and so... I know um, in my in my daughter's, uh, they're living in the South, um, and my youngest, and she is very socially aware, and she she can get up, she can get amped up sometimes pretty quickly, and so that's part of what I try to do is is to take the temperature down or diffuse it with humor or, you know, something to sort of you know let's let's put this in perspective. Um, well it doesn't doesn't always work, but no. I, I generally. But try that. I think it's partly, I will say as a fellow Midwesterner, I think it's partly our Midwestern way, but also um, I think it's a good business training. That's Dale Carnegie 101, right? Like, don't. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I forgot the Quebec course about 40 years ago. Look, <laughs> <laughs> I'd highly recommend it. Um, so Richard, uh, one last question, and then I'll let you have the last word. Um, the evolution of executive recruiting in your vast career, my gosh, you've been at the top of the heap with the largest executive search firm, Corn Ferry, been doing it for decades, then previously in the corporate sector. How have you seen, if at all, the state of recruiting change? And 
and what have been some of the constants? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think when I came in 15 years ago, um, you know, executive recruiters, headhunters, and, and I had never worked with one until I was in my last role, um, actually my last two roles, that's not fair, but um, it was always a little bit of a mystery to, to me how it worked, you know, how do I get on the short list, how do I, you know, how do I raise my hand for opportunities. And I know when I came in and started um, in executive search, it, it tended to be, you know, predominantly a male oriented field. It was, a, you know, a bunch of old guys that had literally Rolodexes and would flip, you know, flip cards and say, oh, well, you know, I know these five people. Um, and it was, it was very transactional. Um, if I'm thinking about and, and honestly answering this, it, it was a very transaction uh, oriented business. It was sort of but yeah, putting butts in seats, right? It's like we got a need, we fill a seat, we get paid. Um, I think what's evolved, and certainly for our firm, because um, you know, search is episodic. There's you know, there's a need, you fill a need. It's a particular requirement or particular role. Uh, and what we've really tried to do is morph into more of a strategic advisory firm, where it's not only finding talent if there's a need for that, but it's also grooming talent and coaching talent and, and helping organizations to think about, um, you know, the, the broader um, asset value of, of the talent. Um, and, and so I think what's, what's changed certainly from my perspective is a, more of a longer term, more holistic relationship with clients. Um, and, and, and also with our placements, it's also sort of helping them to be successful onboarding, coaching. If they're first time in the role, what are the things that they need some help with? How do they need to, if they're coming from a different industry and they're a number two in one industry and going to a number one in a different industry, how can we help them? How can we make some introductions for people in the community that they're moving to or within the industry that they're moving into? It's, so it's it's helping to kind of um, put a you know an action plan in place that can build on the relationship and and um, and, and something that you know matures over time. It's not just sort of filling a role and then disappearing. There so, is again that R word, the relationship. That is the, yeah, yeah, and us, I think, Richard. Yep. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, I want to say thank you to my friend and colleague, Richard Marshall, today. Richard is the head of the corporate affairs practice at Corn Ferry. Richard, what are your call letters for Corn Ferry? Is it KF? Uh, KFY, yeah. Or if uh, anybody wants to take a look at that paper, um, the uh, rising chief sustainability officer, you can go to the Corn Ferry Institute. It's cornferry.com, and, and I think uh, you can download it there. Terrific. Again, Richard Marshall is head of the corporate affairs practice at Corn Ferry, the world's largest executive recruiter, and uh, what, $2 billion uh, size firm with 8,000 employees anywhere in the world. Our dear listeners, that you want to get a leg up, this is the search firm to know. So Richard Marshall, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Hey, Toby, thank you. And if I can put in one plug, first of all, anybody that hasn't read your book yet, I be sure to pick up Toby's book. It's, it's great. It's full of insights. It's a quick read, and and actually, Toby, I don't know whether I told you this or not, but but I've shared that with a number of people that I've placed in um, in the top roles, and uh, I use that as part of their orientation package. So, congratulations to you, and for anybody that hasn't uh, picked it up, be sure you do because it's a it's a really it's a wonderful read, and Toby did a great job putting that together.
Well, thank you, Richard Marshall. I'm actually working on the second edition now, so we'll have you in that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay.